This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Futuro. Despite the fact that U.S. officials have targeted people for so many different reasons, the vast majority, 85-90% of people throughout U.S. history who have been deported, have been Mexicans that have done nothing other than enter the country without inspection. From Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, breaking down the United States deportation machine. There's a good chance that during this pandemic, you've had something of an awakening around the importance of immigrant labor. In fact, you've probably benefited from immigrant labor, likely just today. Maybe it was immigrants who picked the fresh produce sitting in your fridge, or maybe that's how your online delivery arrived at your door this morning. The United States wouldn't operate without its immigrant workforce. And that's held true for most of this country's history. And yet, many of those same essential workers are also constantly living under threat of the deportation machine. That's how Professor Adam Goodman describes the United States' systemic efforts to expel non-citizens. Goodman, a professor of Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, spent the last 10 years researching this history for his book, The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. Through the book, Professor Goodman explores how the machine actually works. The deportation of immigrants has been enabled and enforced by Republican and Democratic administrations alike for well over a century. But it's not just a policy issue. Persistent fear campaigns, social exclusion, and threats of violence and incarceration have forced tens of millions of people out of the United States, most of it through unofficial means. Goodman's research also confirmed that the vast majority of deported immigrants throughout U.S. history have been Mexican. During the 20th century, U.S. businesses became dependent on cheap labor from Mexican immigrants, and actively recruited them into the country, which, by the way, is still happening today. In the years since, the concept of an undocumented immigrant was codified through a series of federal policies. Anti-Mexican racism was often used to justify harsher and more punitive deportation efforts. And it's a trend explicitly continued by the current Trump administration. On this episode of Latino USA, Professor Goodman gives us a crash course on the history of migrant exploitation and expulsion from this country. And he lays out how the deportation machine is still alive and well and running today. Professor Adam Goodman, 
Welcome to Latino USA. Thank you so much for having me, Maria. So I've been reporting on deportation since the very first days of my career, and that's many decades ago. So it's kind of been my life's work to understand deportation and report about it. But at what point, when you were kind of doing your research, you had to have an aha moment because everybody does when they kind of pull back and you're like, oh, wait, this is this is not just Republicans. This is Democrats. And this is not just modern. It's not just in the past, you know, 30 years that this has been happening. This is like an essential part of the American experiment. Do you remember when you had that moment of like, whoa, wait, what? I think it was really learning more about the United States and its mythical reputation as a nation of immigrants. There actually is a long bipartisan history of deportation from the United States, not just Trump, not just Obama, George W. Bush, or Bill Clinton for that matter, but a 140-year history that I trace in this book. And in learning about that, while also confronting the facts I was finding in the archives and the oral histories and conversations I had with people in the United States and in Mexico, uh, that you know their experiences didn't match up with that nation of immigrants narrative, the narrative of the American dream. It matched up with a much different story. And I think the flip side of the coin, which is that the United States, as much as it has welcomed immigrants, has also been incredibly selective in excluding certain groups and expelling groups and making really clear divisions about who belongs, who does not. And that's the question that I begin the book with, is what kind of nation is the United States? And I think those two are always in tension, the nation that welcomes immigrants, as well as the nation that expels immigrants. You're basically saying it's not just that deportation has existed, it's that there's a machinery that there's a kind of even ideology around deportation. And you basically argue that deportation has always been at the heart of the history of the United States, whether it's from the economy to law enforcement to stereotypes in the media. So let's kind of break that, if you could, because that's a big idea. Some people are just like, wait, what are you talking about? You know, we learned about the Statue of Liberty. We didn't learn that people were being deported for years, over 100 years. So how has the deportation of immigrants been central to the narrative of this country? I mean, on the one hand, deportation has been used strategically to maintain an exploitable migrant labor force. And the need for migrant labor is certainly not new. I mean, we could think back to the Irish of the mid-19th century, the Chinese and Japanese in the late 19th, turn of the 20th century, Southern and Eastern Europeans in that same period. And then for much of the last century, Mexican migrants, as all those other groups were excluded by U.S. laws and policies, employers and the federal government and consumers, all of us, in other words, came to depend in large part on Mexican labor. And Mexicans were welcomed into the country as laborers, but they were not, historically at least, welcomed as full members of society or as citizens. The United States has deported 57 million people since the 1880s. Now, close to nine out of 10 of those 57 million deportations have been of Mexicans. And that disproportionate targeting of a single group has also, I think, had 
a real impact in shaping ideas of politicians and of the media and perhaps many people in the general public as well about who is and who is not American. So it's the bureaucratic processes as well as the need for the exploitable migrant labor force that has drawn these real clear dividing lines. You have to kind of look at who's writing the history, who's writing the the books that kids are being taught, and, and then you understand the prism through which deportation is or is not being talked about. And in fact, that's one of the things that you bring up in your book, which is, and this is where it gets really sinister, because you talk about how hard it was to get information about deportations. And so you say, quote, it was designed to leave no paper trail. So, well, how hard was it, in fact, to discover this information? And is that, in fact, part of the plan? It was extraordinarily difficult. And that's part of the reason it took me a decade to research and write this book. Um, you know, But slowly, but surely, the pieces came together. And I was able to, to put together this broader history of the deportation machine, how and why it was constructed, and how it's operated and how it's changed during the last century and a half. But your question also brings up an important point, and that's that the vast majority of deportations throughout U.S. history have happened without due process. The United States deportation machine depends on extraordinary discretionary power that's instilled in low-level agents of the state, Border Patrol agents, INS, and immigration investigators that have the power to decide whether or not to apprehend someone, and in many cases, whether or not to expel them. And we certainly have seen how and why it's problematic to instill extraordinary power in low-level officials, whether that's the police on our city streets or Border Patrol agents and immigration investigators. But the deportation machine is operated based on the unilateral power of low-level officials within a historically racist institution. So we hear a lot about these essentially formal deportations. These are deportations that happen after like an immigration hearing or a judicial order. But in your book, you also talk about other kinds of deportation. There's this term, you know, self-deportation which is basically when people just, they're like exhausted, they're fed up. And so they leave the country. So can you talk a little bit more about these other kinds of expulsions? What we hear about most in the news are the formal deportations. These were the 400,000 deportations a year under the Obama administration that made the news so often. But these are but a small sliver of the total number of expulsions from the United States. Now they carry with them harsher consequences sometimes extended or indefinite periods in detention, as well lifetime bans or multi-year or up to lifetime bans on returning to the U.S. And what immigration officials have done is leveraged these harsh penalties that are associated with formal deportations to coerce people into voluntary departure. Now, I put voluntary departure in quotes because there's nothing voluntary about them. These are administrative expulsions they operate in a similar way as plea bargains in the criminal justice system by threatening people with formal deportation and forcing or coercing them to agree to leave the country, supposedly on their own. But as I show in the book, 
It's under coercive circumstances. But it's also these broad-based fear campaigns, immigration raids, and the propagation of the fear through the media, as well as restrictive immigration laws at the local and state levels, the threat of violence, you know, which is very real, and I think people understand that, that combine to make people's lives miserable until they say that they're going to pick up and leave. Now, rather than think about this as immigrants as rational decision makers deciding to leave on their own, I think we need to understand that as part of the government and sometimes ordinary Americans' strategy to push people out. The first people who were actually excluded were actually Chinese women. They were the first ones who were told by law, like, you can't come. And then it was the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I'm just wondering, how does it move from the exclusion of Chinese immigrants to then specifically targeting Mexican immigrants? So in the late 19th century, immigration officials, as well as many uh, residents of the West Coast, targeted Chinese migrants and specifically Chinese laborers for exclusion and for expulsion in part because they saw them as a racial and a cultural threat to the United States, in part because they saw them as an economic threat, perhaps a public health threat. And it was the combination of those factors that really riled people up and encouraged people to organize extraordinarily violent expulsion campaigns in hopes of pushing the federal government to pass federal legislation that would exclude Chinese migrants from the country. They're successful. Now, people continue to act out on a local level, and officials continue to depend on these informal, coercive means of expulsion. But after 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is renewed and in fact expanded over time, it's much harder for Chinese laborers to enter the United States. Many employers then turned to Japanese laborers. After the 1907 Gentlemen's Agreement between the United States and Japan, more or less cuts off the flow of Japanese laborers, employers turn more and more to Mexicans. And for the next century, the nation becomes entirely dependent in many ways on Mexican labor. Mexicans came to represent both the source of labor that was so needed and in fact sought out in this country. Many U.S. companies sent labor recruiters to the U.S.-Mexico border and sometimes even into Mexico. And on the flip side, they were not welcomed as full members of society. They were not welcomed as citizens, and they lived under the threat of deportation. Coming up on Latino USA, the deportation machine is still alive and well in 2020. We hear more about what makes it tick, how it operates today, and efforts to break it down for good. Stay with us. No te vayas. Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa. Shows like Latino USA are a proving ground and a launchpad for hosts like me. And you know, Latino USA literally changed my life. It's thanks to public radio stations that this podcast is here for you in its current form. Many of you may not be regular listeners to your local public radio station, but 
consider giving it a listen and you'll discover more shows like this one. And if you're so inclined, help us because many of these stations are in their spring pledge drive. Help them expand their reach and service by giving whatever works for you. And thanks. Support for Latino USA comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is an all-in-one management software with apps for every business need. Odoo has apps for CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, manufacturing, and everything in between. And they're all in one easy-to-use software. And the best part about Odoo? All Odoo apps are integrated, helping you get things done faster and more efficiently. So when you think about business, think Odoo. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash latino. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash latino. We're back, and we've been speaking with Professor Adam Goodman. He's the author of the recently released book, The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. We're going to rejoin that conversation now, and Professor Goodman is going to walk us through how the machine is still firing on all cylinders today. It is pretty hard to ignore the role that race and eugenics and white supremacy play here. In your book, you outline... The success of something called, um, and it's a slur here, Operation Wetback, this was a coordinated effort to expel tens of thousands of Mexican laborers from the country in the 1950s. And, you know, even that name, it really shows how comfortable the government and officials have been with not only racist language, but racist tactics. And, you know, that was pretty recent history. So when you analyze it through this lens, How does racism and white supremacy keep the deportation machine running? One of the things that I realized in researching the book is that the disproportionate targeting of Mexicans wasn't just in response to anti-Mexican racism, but it actually played a formative role in furthering and reifying and solidifying anti-Mexican racism. So after the Bracero program, the temporary migrant labor program that brought 400,000 or so Mexican migrant laborers to the United States on short-term contracts from 1942 to 1964, after that ended, and after the 1965 Immigration Act passed for the first time ever, putting a cap on the number of migrants that could enter from the Western Hemisphere, in other words, Mexicans, people from the Caribbean and elsewhere, After the Bracero program ended and after the 1965 immigration law went into effect, the country still needed laborers. And Mexicans continued to provide that labor. Now, they were considered undocumented. So it was that change in state policy that created our problem of undocumented immigration. I think it's an entirely solvable, fixable problem. Legislatively, there might not be the political will to do so. But what happened in the decades ahead is that immigration officials continued to deport Mexicans. And because the border was still relatively porous, Mexicans after deportation 
could return to the United States, return to their jobs, and return to their families, because many of them had lived in the country for years or even decades at that point. And there became a circular migration pattern. It worked on the one hand for employers. It worked on the other hand for the immigration service, who could inflate their deportation statistics, which made them look good and also gave them a reason to request more money from Congress. But what most scholars haven't recognized is that this was an entirely punitive cycle. If you think about the impact it has on someone to live under the threat of deportation, to have the possibility of being apprehended and expelled on a daily basis, if you think of the human toll that that takes, then I think we don't see this as a nod in the wing system that worked for employers and worked for the immigration service. But in fact, we see it as an entirely punitive process that took a real toll on individuals. And it also, I think, shaped ideas about who is and who is not American and doubled down on anti-Mexican racism. Right. And of course, I mean, it's still happening. Donald Trump basically takes this idea and he runs with it. And we saw this from the very start of his presidential campaign, where he cites immigrants and specifically Mexicans as being the essential carriers of all the problems that exist in this country. So how exactly did the machine's messaging get this targeted and really kind of focused on a specific group of immigrants that would be Mexicans? How did that happen? This false binary between us and them, which we've seen the current administration use time and again to justify racist, inhumane policies. I mean, I I do not think this is new. The headlines in the newspapers across more than a century, they're fairly similar. I mean, if I gave you five headlines, one from the late 19th century, one from the 19-teens, another from the 1930s, 1950s, 1970s, and today, you wouldn't be able to tell what decade they were from if I took the dates off. So, you know, think about one example. So in the mid-1950s, I document the deportation of nearly 50,000 Mexicans across the Gulf of Mexico on transportation cargo ships. Now, the U.S. government collaborated with Mexican officials in this operation, and they hired Mexican companies to carry it out. They took bananas from the Mexican state of Tabasco, transported them to states in the U.S. South, like Alabama, and then on the return trip, swung by Port Isabel, Texas, to pick up Mexican deportees for transportation to Veracruz. And now this flow of cargo north and south, because that is how the U.S. officials, that is how the company officials describe the deportees. They were considered human cargo. And it was meant, in fact, to discourage them from returning to the United States. It was perhaps a precursor to what we think of today as prevention through deterrence policies, which we've heard about recently with the Trump administration's separation of Central American asylum-seeking families or the border militarization policies in the 1990s. Now, what we know is that None of these policies have stopped people from migrating and crossing the border, but they have exacted an extraordinary human cost. And U.S. officials have been okay with that. And I should mention that Mexican officials at certain points in history have been as well because of how they saw Mexican migrants and the racist language they used to describe them made that clear, saying that the conditions aboard the boats are justifiable considering the type of people being transported. Those are their words. You know, some people might think that the deportation is 
the worst thing that happens, but you actually refer to the fact that living under the constant threat of deportation is for many Mexicans and Latinos. It's something that, you know, you, you can't get over. It's the kind of thing that marks you psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. You also talk though about how immigrants and allies in this country haven't just taken this lying down, that they're constantly pushing back against these restrictive and racist policies. And I'm wondering when you're facing a system that builds itself on secrecy and invisibility, exactly like you've laid out the deportation machine has, how do people effectively organize then? How do you fight against this giant system? It's hard to see and it's hard to understand. So how do you do that? Regardless of what happens in November, the deportation machine will continue. Regardless of who's in power, Democrat or Republican, the machine has chugged along over time, over the course of the last 150 years. So there still will be work to do. It is extraordinarily important. And I'm glad you bring up the fact that people have always fought back against the machine. And one of the things activists have done is trying to identify how the machine operates, how the machine works, identifying its weak points, and then applying pressure to them. And those weak points change over time. But I think what people today can do is not just to post something on social media, but to investigate what's happening in your local community, listening to the people most affected by these policies, listening to the people who are on the front lines, who have long been fighting these fights, and who need mass support. Because I do think there is a real opportunity for change. I mean, the possibilities, I think, have shifted as we've seen Black Lives Matter organizing and seen the potential, at least, for radical change when it comes to policing in the United States. People have also been pushing for the abolition of ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement. And that's something we should have on the table. We should be thinking about how can we reform and remake immigration bureaucracy so that it can be more humane, so that it can actually be a service agency and not just an enforcement arm of the federal government. Immigrants, obviously, have been central to this country. And you're saying so has deportation, which begs the question, the final question, which is, so who actually benefits? Why keep doing this? What is the end goal? First and foremost, the immigration bureaucracy itself benefits. There's a self-interest within the Department of Homeland Security today, regardless of which party is in power or who has the White House, who controls Congress. The immigration bureaucracy will still see that it's in its best interest to keep enforcement up. A second group that certainly benefits are employers and perhaps in turn consumers who take advantage of the exploitable migrant labor force and the control they exercise over it, the control the deportation machine provides them to maintain low wages and low costs to consumers. So we're all benefiting in a way. The question becomes then, would we be willing to change and to pay a little bit more for products? Would we be willing to understand that the status quo isn't sustainable over time and in fact is in conflict with our morals and our political beliefs and that raises a number of hard questions but i think they're important questions that we should be asking ourselves and wrestling with professor adam goodman thank you so much for spending some time with us on latino usa thanks so much for having me on 
Adam Goodman's book, The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants, is available now. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and edited by Luis Treyes. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Julieta Martinez, Alisa Escarce, and Ginny Montalvo, with help this week from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau, Julia Caruso, and Leah Shaw, with help from Alicia Baitu. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Jimena del Cerro, Emil Sequiroz, and Gabriela Baez. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Ahí los veo. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by Carnegie Corporation, promoting the advancement and diffusion of knowledge and understanding, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. How's the weather in Chicago? You know, it's really rainy here today. It's pretty gray. Yeah, dude, it reminds me, we have to take tortillas. tortillas <laughs> from Chicago. You got El Milagro, I bet, right? Pero claro. Yeah, of That's course. Been, it was a rough puesta. time, bro. It was a rough time, man, when they closed down. I know. Because I get a whole box, so I've got like dry. 50 dozen, you know. <laughs> I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we're going to talk about Latino Republicans. Almost a third of Latinos and Latinas voted for President Trump in 2016, and they're probably going to do it again this year. Trump was the man, and Trump was good, and I'd say, I don't want to talk politics. That's next time on Latino USA. 